1 Corinthians 11:17 says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I receive from the Lord that which I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, And drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And Father, we humbly ask for the grace and just the help of your Holy Spirit now as we continue in our worship by opening the word of God and listening to what the voice of your spirit would say to us through it. So speak, Lord, your servants are listening, and we ask for that ministry of your spirit in this time in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. In our spiritual lives, it's important to remember that it matters to God not just what we do, that is, our actions or religious activities or spiritual routines, not just what we do, but it matters very much to God how we do it. That is the attitude of our heart behind what we're doing, the approach in how we go about it. Again, remember Jesus himself on one occasion reproved in his days by saying, you you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. In other words, Jesus was pointing out, you may be saying the right things, maybe even using your lips to recite prayers or sing songs, but he says, you're going through the motions religiously, but your heart's not in it. In other words, that mattered apparently to Jesus, who was God in the flesh and was indicating that that mattered very much to God, not just doing religious routines, but was their heart in the right place in the way that they were going about those things? And we see that declared to us, I believe, here in this section of Scripture in regards to how we come together for our gatherings as a church. That's really the emphasis of this section, how we come together for gatherings as a church, not just getting together, listen, socially, but how we actually conduct ourselves and that we gather in a right way spiritually that matters to God. Now, As a side note, before we jump into our verses together, in the New Testament, we see two ordinances left for the believer or for the church to participate in. Two ordinances we find in the New Testament. The first, of course, is water baptism, which is something observed personally to declare your salvation when you become a Christian. Once you become born again of the Spirit, you should obey the Lord in water baptism, and it is an ordinance for the Christian to observe, to publicly declare your salvation experience outwardly, to make it manifest and known. The second observance that we're supposed to participate in, or ordinance, you could say, for the church, is communion. And communion is something that we're to observe collectively to celebrate Jesus Christ's work and to stay focused. And one of the ways that you can recognize those things which are ordinances for the New Testament church to still participate in, in other words, things that we are still supposed to observe as the church and they're non-negotiables are really based upon three things. Is it instituted by Jesus in the Gospels? 
so it must be instituted by Jesus in the Gospels, was it performed and obeyed in the early church as seen in the book of Acts? And then thirdly, is it restated or explained again further in the epistles? So if you want to know something is a requirement for the church to be observing, it should have those three criteria. It was instituted by Jesus. We see that in the Gospels. It was, was participated in or obeyed and performed in the early church as evidenced in the book of Acts. And it's reiterated again then in the epistles, the letters of the New Testament as well. And both water baptism and communion meet those criteria. And there are other things that don't. For example, like foot washing. Oh, we have to have foot washing services. Well, they had a foot washing service, but you don't see foot washing reiterated everywhere in all three of these areas in such a way whereby it's something that we're required to do. Can we do it? Of course. But it's not an ordinance or something that we have to do. And these are the ways we differentiate those things doctrinally as far as staying balanced in regards to that. Now, this morning, we're looking at one of the New Testament passages that has a great deal of instruction regarding communion or the Lord's Supper. And remember, chapters 11 through 14, we mentioned, are now dealing with how believers conduct themselves in public worship meetings. That's the context of chapters 11 through 14, the public worship meeting and gathering times. And much of the instruction is very correctional because there were things the Corinthians were doing when they gathered together that were out of alignment with the way that things God wanted them to be done. So look at me, verse 17, Paul begins to address this now. He says in verse 17, first of all, now in giving these instructions, he says, <clears throat> I don't praise you. Since you come together, gathering, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions, he says, among you, so that those who are approved may be, that is, so they can be recognized among you. Now, from a bird's eye perspective, before we begin to develop more of what the texts are saying, Take notice, first of all, this repeated phrase that shows up twice here in verses 17 and 19, but it actually shows up five times in the remainder of chapter 11 in this section, this repeated phrase from the Holy Spirit of coming together. You notice there in verse 17, he says, when you come together, that is Christians coming together for a meeting. Verse 18, when you come together, as a church, that is the church coming together, assembling themselves. Verse 20, when you come together in one place, not separate places, that is your Christians, but Christians meet together in one place for a gathering or a meeting time. Verses 30 and 34, look, it comes there again. He concludes by saying, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another, verse 34, lest when you come together. So five times, this is purposeful emphasis from the Holy Spirit seeking to indicate something. First of all, the context that this section is talking about public gathering. It's talking about the times when the church gathers together, when the church comes together for assembly meetings it's intended to emphasize the context, but also to emphasize, I believe, a clear characteristic of what the church is. The church is a group of individual Christ followers that come together. That's what we do. That's what the church's intention is. The intention of the church is that as a group of people unified by the Spirit, we are the body of Christ, we are individually members, the Bible says, of one another, and what Christians do as a part of the church, the called-out assembly, the ecclesia, is we gather ourselves together. It's one of the marks of what we do as the church. We come together. That's God's will. That's God's intention. Apparently, the Corinthian believers put a strong emphasis upon their investment in coming together, their commitment to coming together. In this, they were doing what was right, 
They came together for worship meetings, for fellowship gatherings, and as Paul addresses here to celebrate the Lord's Supper, certainly one area they were not deficient in was their devotion to gathering together as a group of people who loved Jesus and assembling themselves. In Acts chapter 2, we're told of the early church there. It tells us this, of the early church, one of the clear marks from the beginning of the church. It says, and continuing daily with one accord in the temple, that is the house of God, and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Notice, so committed was the early church to gathering together, literally says on a daily basis. Things were so tough, persecution was so intense, and their enthusiasm about finding Christ and being together as the family of God was so strong, whether it was gathering in the temple or whether it was gathering house to house, it says that they were gathering themselves together. We're told as a warning in Hebrews chapter 10. It tells us there, Hebrews 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, don't let go of the hope that you have in Christ. Don't waver spiritually. Well, how do we hold fast and how do we stay anchored and not waver? Well, the Bible says this, for he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another, be considerate that we need one another in order to stir up love and good works. And then he says this, here's the warning, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day that is the day of the Lord approaching. Notice the Bible prophetically warned by the Holy Spirit because it was already happening. And I don't know exactly what the reasons were in that day when the writer of Hebrews was writing, but already there were some who were, it says, forsaking the gathering together of the saints. There were those who were forsaking assembling themselves together with the body of Christ. And here, the Bible was cautioning us against not doing that, that it's not healthy, it's not safe for our spiritual lives, and saying that all the more we need to assemble ourselves together as we see the day approaching. Why? Because it's going to get harder. It's going to get more difficult spiritually. So again, so important that we see this concept, and here it's strongly emphasized in verse you know, these many verses of chapters 11 through 14, this idea of the church assembling themselves together and that we recognize that this is God's design for the church, the body of Christ, that we are to be together as the people of God. It's something we are to be committed to and to participate in, to be in accordance with the will of God for our lives. Verse 17, he's telling us here that sadly, the problem with the Corinthian church is when they were having their meetings their meetings were not really happening in a healthy manner. So they were gathering together, but the way they were gathering was something that needed a little bit of correction. They were becoming counterproductive spiritually, not only missing the goal, but actually causing unhealthy results. That's why Paul says in verse 17, I need to give you some instruction. He says, I can't commend you because when you're coming together for your meetings, he says, it's not for the better but actually for the worse. In other words, when they were gathering together for their meeting times, the goal, and of course we should know this, the goal should have been to what? Honor Christ in the meeting, right? We're, we're Christ followers. So when we come together, it's for the sake of Jesus Christ. We should be coming to honor Christ. The very spirit of Jesus Christ is about what? Being personally sacrificial. It's about being servant-hearted. It's about taking into consideration and love what's in the best interest of helping and blessing others. Yet the selfish attitude of the Corinthians and the way they were conducting themselves was contradicting the very spirit of Christ they should have been gathering in. And Paul says, I can't praise you for how you're having church meetings. Instead, you need a little bit of instruction. You're having church, but it ain't going the way that you're supposed to be having church there, he says. You've gotten the train off the tracks. The problem is though they assembled, one part of the problem was that the spirit of the Lord was not necessarily directing their meetings. And to me, this is very insightful. Instead, it seems more of a worldly spirit of human selfishness was what was characterizing their behavior. And as a result, Paul says, when you come together, it's not for the betterment 
of the people who are assembling, but he says it's actually causing people to do worse spiritually than do better spiritually. Now, that's a pretty sad testament. One translation renders this, your meetings do more harm than good. Uh, What a sad testament of a church gathering. Can you imagine a church gathering and the spirit of God says, yeah, you had a church gathering, but that church gathering, that group or that assembly meeting, the way it happened and what went on in it and how it unfolded, it actually did more spiritual harm than spiritual good. And this is what's being confronted here by Paul, this sad characterization. Now, the reality of this teaches us is apparently it is possible, the church of Corinth is an example, it is possible, listen, to both conduct a church meeting as well as attend a church meeting and end up not only not helping people spiritually, but actually end up hindering people's spiritual lives because of what went on in the meeting. And I think the word of God is bringing this to our attention because one of the main reasons the body of Christ is supposed to gather is to build each other up spiritually, right? That's supposed to be the goal. Honor Jesus and help one another. Ephesians chapter four tells us, according to the effective working by which every part does its share as we're together, causes growth of the body and the edifying or building up of itself in love. And this was not the case at the church of Corinth. The way they were functioning, they weren't building each other up. They were having church gatherings and tearing each other down. They were having church gatherings and the way people were behaving and the way the meetings were happening, it wasn't helping build people's spiritual lives. It actually was bringing people down, making them more carnal, selfish, and worldly, though they were having so-called spiritual meetings in their minds. Now, to me, this is a very strong reminder because the identifying of this in Scripture brings a great lesson to our attention that the intention of God is that whenever we have meetings as his people, that the end result of that, what we do, what we don't do in meetings, the way we hold our meetings or how we don't hold our meetings, the things that characterize how we're together and how we direct ourselves should result in other people leaving better off spiritually than when they came. If the end result is people don't walk out of a meeting of God's people and they're doing better spiritually, something got missed. So case in point, if they were really entertained, they had a great experience, but they didn't have a spiritual experience, they left worse than when they came. The goal is that people would leave in a better condition spiritually as the result of how the gathering is conducted and what we do as the people. And the identification of this reproof here shows that there can be that error and mistake made by any group of God's people if we're not careful. And Paul identifies some of the specific problems that were ruining the climate there at the church of Corinth. In verse 18, he says, first of all, when you come together as a church, When you come together, he says, yes, you're together. But he says, I hear there are divisions among you. Again, we've talked about this before earlier in the letter. Notice the root of the matter was sort of an immature, selfish mindset that produced a self-serving attitude in the lives of the Corinthian Christians, where yes, they were gathering, but the attitude of the attendees was kind of along these lines, what's in it for me? I'm there for me, and and I'm here to get what I can out of this. And as a result of that, it led to things Paul's going to talk about here, like divisions. They were very self-focused, and they had different ideas and opinions on different matters, both about leaders and who like this Bible teacher and different theological perspectives, and then just different personal opinions. And we've seen a great deal in the church in Corinth. There was a lot of carnality and division. The family life and the harmony wasn't very strong. The love among them wasn't very fruitful. And it was causing separation and relationships and hindering the unity of the family life. Paul also identifies in verse 19 how another problem is that they were people, they're seeking recognition. That is, they wanted to be seen as important or spiritual. That was another problem. He says, there must be factions among you, it seems, because those who are approved Notice, they want to be recognized, he says, verse 19, among you. 
In other words, there was this selfishness of the human spirit where the Corinthians had this struggle with wanting to have the approval and the recognition among one another. That is, people wanted to be admired or noticed, even in church life. Look, this is a strong reminder to us that sadly, pride can even manifest itself in the spiritual life, where in a sense, what we want to be is recognized as spiritual. We want to be seen as special or superior or more important. And whether it's the way that someone ministers in a manner where they want recognition, they want to be acknowledged, or they want to look like a celebrity before the people, or whether it's the way that we you know, interact with one another where we're seeking recognition to be perceived as someone who's more spiritual than others. So we, we pray in a certain way or we behave in a certain way where people, wow, that sister's really spiritual. Or he's, and, and people are seeking recognition. And, and it's just a, an issue of pride is what it really is. And the Bible says these things begin to pollute the gathering of God's people. Paul goes on to say in verse 20, I mean, worse than what you'd imagine. He says, therefore, when you come together in one place, he says, is it not to eat the Lord's supper? For in eating, he says, each one takes his own supper ahead of others and one is hungry and another, there it is right in your Bible, another at church is drunk. Now, in the early church, they very often as a cultural thing had what were called these love feasts or agape meals they would refer to them as. In a lot of ways, it was very similar to what we today in our modern vernacular refer to as like a church potluck or a, a church dinner where we would come together and everybody brings something to share or whatever. And they often held these weekly as a part of their cultural protocol, and they would gather together for these mealtimes. And as they would share these meals together, they did it purposely. It was just a way for them to spend time together. It was the way they got to know each other more deeply, right? That's what happens over food. You know, I, it's, it's amazing how I can have a men's event. If I have a men's event one way, if I have a men's event and I attach food to it, the sign-up sheet greatly increases. Hey, whatever, we'll spend money on food. If that's what gets 30 guys here last night to, you know, come together and sit down and spend time together. And for an hour and 15 minutes, they're just talking and fellowshipping and building bonds and knowing what's going on in each other's lives and, you know, building relationship connection because we need each other as brothers for accountability. And, you know, how else do we get to know one another and be able to care for one another and help each other? And, and so they did this in the early church. It was a very common thing. They would have these meals. And this is what Paul is referring to here as they would get together. And usually at the end of these agape feasts, they would then culminate the meal at the end. Usually they would culminate by partaking of the Lord's Supper or sharing communion. At the end of it, they'd say, hey, look, before we go home, why don't we just remember why we're all together? Why don't we remember the mutual savior that we have? He says, when you come together there, is it not to partake of, he says, the Lord's Supper? So they'd come together for this meal, but then it would culminate in remembering they had a mutual savior they all had the same father in heaven. They were brothers and sisters and spiritual family. The problem in the Corinthian church is those dinner meetings had gotten a little bit out of hand. And this is what Paul's addressing here. It became more like a worldly social party down at the clubhouse rather than a loving meal among a group of Christians. Everybody was striving to be first in line to get the good items selfishly again you notice what he says there verse 21 he says in eating each one takes his own supper ahead of others in other words they knew you know who was the real betty crocker among the church and when they saw her bring in her dish they got in line real fast hey, i gotta get in line because that's gonna go quick and so they were just you know being selfish they were cutting in line trying to get their meal before others and if that weren't enough, it actually is right there in the Bible, verse 21. It says, and some people were actually getting drunk. They were drinking to the degree where they actually were getting intoxicated and making this a disgraceful atmosphere. Again, the problem was this attitude of selfishness and irreverence. And keep in mind, these love feasts were supposed to be emphasizing what? Love. <laughs> caring for one another and having a Christ-like spirit of, hey, how can we help each other? And in this time period, understand too, many among the church were poor and slaves. And because of that, 
as you would expect, those who were poor and slaves among the early church and less fortunate, when they had these Sunday agape feasts, for many of those people, this was the best meal they got all week long. But it seems what was happening is people were bringing food and these individuals were kind of being pushed aside and brushed off. And this would have been the best meal they would have ever gotten all week long. And he says, you know, here people are taking their supper ahead of others and leaving people hungry. Other people are getting drunk. And the idea is that nobody's being considerate of one another. They're all being rude. And Paul was so shocked by this behavior. That's why he says in verse 22, he says, what? exclamation point do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of god and shame those who have nothing what shall i say to you he says can i praise you in this i do not praise you so paul's looking at the way they're treating each other and the fact that there's actually people getting drunk at the church love meals and he's saying are you kidding me is this really going on there in Corinth? You're acting like this is a social gathering, you know, down at the clubhouse. And, and he says, I, I'm at loss for words. What do I even say to you? He was completely just shocked and chagrined by this. He says, don't you realize you're despising God's gathering there? And the exact opposite of what they should have been doing to prepare themselves for communion which is to have a reverent heart and to be unified as the family of believers. They're doing the exact opposite of that in the way that they're behaving. So because of this, Paul now wants to remind them about celebrating the Lord's Supper and what it's truly about and that the way it might be done in a right spirit and a right heart to honor the Lord. He says, verse 23, for I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, which apparently they weren't doing there very well. That the Lord Jesus on the same night, verse 23, was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you, and do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So here in these verses, we get really probably some of the most lengthy explanation of what taking communion or participating in what we call the Lord's Supper is really to be about. And notice the first thing in verse 23 there that Paul reminds them of, which was important, is who instituted the Lord's Supper. Now that should be a dead giveaway by what we just called it right there. The Lord's Supper. And Paul draws to their attention who instituted this thing of partaking of the communion meal. He says, verse 23, that which I received from the Lord, I delivered to you that it was the Lord Jesus who instituted this meal on the same night that he was being betrayed, Paul says. So interesting as well, take notice, the same night that Jesus was being betrayed as God, he instituted the Lord's Supper. To me, I've always found that insightful because as man was in this act of betraying God, God in love was already building a bridge back to man in a great act of love. And communion was instituted by the Lord Jesus, we're told, on that night in the upper room with his disciples. Matthew 26 and Luke 22 give us the account where Jesus institutes during the Passover meal this thing that we now celebrate as Christians as the Lord's Supper. Remember, the Passover feast was a memorial of the deliverance of bondage out of Egypt. And it was on that night as they were sharing the Passover meal that Jesus refocused, you might say, he refocused the Passover meal for those who would be believers and Christ followers into a new celebration which would be out about an infinitely greater deliverance, a deliverance of the souls of people in regards to what Christ has done for us, all of which the Passover experience and the lamb was a foreshadowing of, right? That's what the Passover foreshadowed. First Corinthians 5, we saw there, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. So the Passover and the lamb and all that was done foreshadowed the ultimate deliverance that jesus would bring spiritually 
as the Passover lamb and through his shed blood. Yet because the Lord Jesus established celebrating the Lord's Supper, that gives it tremendous dignity and importance. And Paul is trying to say, look, the very fact that Jesus instituted this should cause us to slow down and to be a lot more reverent about celebrating communion than sometimes we can be because we realize it's something that Jesus instituted. Now, when you look at the instruction given in our verses here, we see some of the purposes of communion laid out for us in these verses. Let me just identify three of them that are very obvious when you look at these verses. One of the purposes of communion clearly, first of all, is reflection. Reflection. That is looking back at something meaningful and important. It's meant to be a memorial to honor the sacrificial death, right? And the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ for our atonement for sins. As Jesus instituted communion, he talked about his broken body and his shed blood. And he's speaking about how these things were intended to reflect upon what he did. Even as the elements of Passover, listen, the elements of Passover were symbolic reminders, right? All the things they would do and partake of eating in the Passover meal, they were symbolic reminders. God wanted them to be kept in remembrance of his love and of his deliverance. Well, the elements of communion, the bread and the cup, are intended to be symbolic, solemn reminders. God wants us to reflect upon Jesus and his substitutionary suffering and him taking the punishment of our sins, that the bread speaks, Jesus said, of my body which was broken for you. That is the suffering that he endured in his flesh, that we would remember the love of Jesus, that he would suffer so greatly and brutally. And as we partake of the bread, it reminds us of his depths of suffering. And as we partake of the cup, Jesus said the cup, it's that new covenant, the new covenant now not based upon the blood of bulls and goats that just temporarily appease the wrath of God, but the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin, removes sin from us once for all. It doesn't just hide it. It removes the stain of sin from our life because it's the blood of the Passover lamb, Christ himself, the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. And that's why Jesus says, whenever you do this, he says two times, verse 24 and 25, do this in remembrance, key word, in remembrance of me. Again, it's about reflection, solemn reflection. Now, that brings up a very important point. As Jesus instructed here about communion, he says in verse 24 and verse 25, you're doing these things in remembrance of me. He doesn't say in order to receive something from me. Now, now track with me here because this is very important to understand what communion is biblically and the error of what it is not biblically. Jesus says, when you do this, you're doing it in remembrance, recognition, reflection of me. You're not receiving something from me. Now, it's important to know that because this teaches us the bread and the wine are symbolic in nature. They are not changed into anything supernaturally. And this is one of the common errors that exists among what we call the church. The Roman Catholic doctrine of what is called transubstantiation teaches in its belief that the elements, the bread and the cup, literally are being miraculously changed or transformed by the priest at the altar into the literal body and the literal blood of Christ. That a miracle is somehow supposedly happening mystically in the hands of a priest and that the bread and the cup are literally through whatever's being done becoming the body, the flesh of Christ and the actual blood of Christ and miraculously it's being changed into something. Look, the, the problem with that is there's no scriptural support for that. If anything, that contradicts scripture. Because what that would be conveying is that Jesus needs to suffer and bleed repetitively. That Jesus needs to keep suffering. And that Jesus' blood needs to keep being shed. And listen to what Hebrews 9 says. It says, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, 
but into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us. Listen, not that he, Jesus, should offer himself often as the high priest to enter the most holy place with the blood of another. For then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's appointed for man to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. The Bible teaches that Christ suffered once, that Christ bled sufficiently once And he doesn't have to repeatedly suffer because if he has to repeatedly suffer, then that means the first time he did it, it wasn't sufficient. I can't swallow that. Jesus said, it is finished. So this idea of trying to convey the concept that the body of Christ is being broken again, the blood of Christ is being shed again, it contradicts the Bible and it diminishes the value of the once-for-all finished, complete suffering of Jesus Christ. We're remembering something. We're not receiving something in communion. The bread and the cup, listen, are memorials, not sacraments. A memorial is something that takes place because somebody has already obtained grace and they want to celebrate it. A sacrament is being performed in order to somehow obtain a spiritual grace And it's an impartation of grace spiritually. The elements of communion are intended to be memorials to reflect upon the work of Christ. They're not offered as a spiritual work that we do to have to receive something from Christ. Because the Bible tells us by grace through faith in Christ's work, we're saved. It's not a work. So we don't need to do a work or we don't need to one last time partake of the elements of the Lord's Supper to be ready to die. (laughs) We're saved by the finished work of Christ. Communion is a solemn reflection where we think about what Jesus has done for us. Another thing communion is intended to be, and our verses convey, is it's not only about reflection, it's also about, you might say, spiritually realignment. Realignment, because what does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance, but notice the last word, do it in remembrance of me. Jesus says, when you're doing this, I want you to think about me. The person of Jesus is what our focus should be upon. Spurgeon said this. He said, we ought to see the elements of communion like a set of eyeglasses. That's a very interesting illustration. And he went on to say, because eyeglasses aren't made to look at, they're made to look through. And he says, so the elements of communion are something that we use to look through them to see Jesus to remember Jesus, to to realign our focus, to get refocused. When you put glasses on, things come into focus, right? And that's the idea. The elements of communion are God's way to help us kind of get realigned in our spiritual focus, to see clearly once again. Because sometimes, I don't know about you, my spiritual life can get a little out of focus. We can get out of alignment spiritually, just like your back can get out of alignment. So you go to the chiropractor, try and get it back in alignment, if that's what you do, if you go to chiropractors, right? Well, that's the idea. Sometimes we need spiritual realignment. And the table of the Lord is a good way to bring us back sometimes into spiritual focus, to bring us back into alignment that it's about Jesus Christ and him crucified. As we share the elements of communion, we realign our heart spirit. So we remember the basics again of what it's all about, that it's just about that Jesus loves me. And I have a relationship with Jesus. And it's not all the trappings of Christianity and the way we complicate our spirit, but it's just about a love relationship with Jesus. And my sins are forgiven. And I'm going to heaven, man. And all the basics come back into focus again, the things that really matter. That's why Jesus said, do it in remembrance of me. And verse 26, Paul tells us that whenever we do eat the bread and drink the cup, we're proclaiming the Lord's death till he comes. So we're making notice a public declaration of the work of Christ and how much it means to us. One final purpose I think Paul indicates there in verse 26 of communion, you may say thirdly, is that communion is also a time not just of remembering and realigning ourselves, but also of rejoicing. Because do you see what he says at the end of verse 26? We proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. 
So communion is not just about solemn reflection. It's also about rejoicing that because of what we're reflecting upon the finished work of Christ, we also now have the hope of the return of Jesus to come back and finish the salvation process for us, that he's coming back for us. One man said the Lord's Supper is like a link between the two comings of Jesus. We look back at the first coming of what Christ did and remember it, and we rejoice that because of his first coming and what he did, we now rejoice that his second coming as a risen Savior is going to rescue us out of the sin in this world and bring us home to be with him. So as we share the elements, it's with a heart of anticipation. That's why Jesus said in my father's house are many mansions. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you when I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself that where I am there, you may be also. So as we partake of communion, we're reflecting, remembering, we're appreciating, but we're also rejoicing saying, and Lord, because you did that, We're doing this until you come. And until you come, we're going to continue to be hopeful because one day you're ultimately going to rescue us out of here. And notice the Bible doesn't also seem to give a legalistic structure of the time frame of celebrating communion. It doesn't say, hey, you have to celebrate it once a week or once a month or the Bible doesn't specify. It simply assumes two basic facts that each person will participate in communion And that is something that we will do semi-regularly or often. He says there, verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread. In other words, the implication is that you do it and that you do it often. And again, I think that's left to the discretion of the individual believer to different church fellowships. There should be a semi-regular participation. The only thing the Bible assumes is that we do participate and we think it's important and we participate in it and that we do it with a degree of regularity because of the spiritual benefit it brings to our lives. Now, as Paul concludes the chapter, he's going to address the proper way to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. He says, verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, he says, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So Paul addresses in verse 27 how to prepare ourselves for partaking of the Lord's Supper. And he says we're not to partake, verse 27, notice, in an unworthy manner, he says. He doesn't say you can't partake as an unworthy person, right, or as an unworthy member of the church, because the bottom line is, who's worthy? None. The Bible says no one's righteous, no, not one. So it's not a matter of, oh, I'm so unworthy. I feel so unworthy, I shouldn't partake of... The Bible says just not to partake in an unworthy manner. That is the manner of how you go about doing it. We're not to partake in a manner, in a way that's unworthy of what it represents in its dignity and its importance and its reverence. The manner in which we go about it shouldn't be dishonoring what it represents, Jesus and his sacrifice and what he's done for us. So for example, I think the implication, what does it mean to do it in an unworthy manner? Well, ritualistically where we just do it methodically and ritualistically and we're kind of just mechanical and irreverent. You know, we just kind of, you know, do this and do, okay, boom, and it's done. And and we just kind of mechanical and irreverent and just unmeaningful to us. That would be in an unworthy manner. Or another way of doing it in an unworthy manner to me would be to partake of communion when you're willfully living in a sinful, rebellious path. And basically you're going to live in ongoing sin and not willing to repent of it, acknowledge it, or seek to turn from it, but then you're going to partake of communion and say, Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins so that as soon as I go home, I can watch pornography. You see, that's kind of doing it in an unworthy manner. Lord, thank you for suffering in the way that you did and dying for my sins so that I can continue to persist in this sinful fact. Well, that would be in an unworthy manner. It's not an appropriate way to do it. It dishonors what it represents. Paul says, verse 28, and said, but let a man examine himself and then let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. So how do we prepare for communion? It's a time of self-examination, the Bible says. So the way we do it in a worthy manner is that we pause And we do a little self-examination. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, see if there be any wicked way in me 
and lead me in a way everlasting. So he says, let a man first examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and the cup. So as we come to the table of the Lord, it's a time when sin should be confessed if it's going on in our lives. We should acknowledge it, own it, and be willing to repent and forsake it. It's a time when relationship conditions should be considered. Lord, I have relationships that are amiss in my life. And if so, we should seek to reconcile those things if needed. It's a time when we should seek to have a state of our inner spirit be right with God. God, I just want to be right with you. Before I partake of the elements, I just want to take a minute and and make sure things are right between you and I. It's a time when we should examine ourselves and make an honest assessment of our condition and then partake with appreciation that though we are flawed and fail and get off track at times, that the reminder of these elements is what covers our sins and our shortcomings and that there's the opportunity to forgive and to forgive others and to experience the love of Christ even though we may be struggling from time to time. Paul says, verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, he goes back to this, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, self-examination, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, that is in a disciplinary way by the Lord, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world that is condemned with the unsaved world. So in these verses, Paul describes how ongoing, you could say, ongoing irreverence and stubborn, willful disobedience in the heart of a child of God, particularly in relationship to even disgracing Christ and how we take communion mechanically, but yet inwardly our heart is in a completely wrong place stubbornly, can result in experiencing disciplinary punishment from the Lord. He says, verse 29 here, that when we conduct ourselves in an unworthy manner of Christ, he says, we're not discerning the Lord's body. Now, I think that refers to two things. That is not discerning the suffering that Christ went through in his body in order to spare us from sin and deliver us from the destructive paths of sin, as well as we're not discerning the Lord's body at times when we behave in a way where we're not recognizing that we're a part of the body of Christ. And when we want to be stubborn and irreverent and persist in our little sin party, we're not discerning the fact that we are connected to a family. And we're disregarding that, hey, I'll continue to hate this person or be bitter at that person or be mean or irreverent. And we're not discerning, wait a minute, you're a part of a body. What are you doing? What you do has an effect upon the whole family. And so he says, when we do that, we're not discerning the Lord's body. And verse 30, he says, for this reason, apparently they were doing this. He says, some there in Corinth had become weak, that as God had stripped them of their strength. Others had become sick. That is, some of them, God was afflicting them with illness in a disciplinary way to get their attention. And others, he says, many sleep, which is a biblical euphemism actually for death. In other words, the Bible teaches that in some cases, if a believer remains unrepentant in a harmful path for a prolonged time, the Lord may determine that it could be better for them and for everyone else, if need be, to even end their earthly life prematurely. That there could become a situation where the potential disciplinary action of the Lord at his discretion could be if we fail to judge ourselves, that is, we fail to properly assess our own lives, he says there may come a time where the Lord says, you know what, if you're not going to deal with your situation, if you're not going to honestly take responsibility and turn and repent and make things right, then it may be necessary for me to just take you home early because you're just going to be a detriment to your own spiritual testimony and you are becoming such a detriment to the body of Christ that the Lord at his discretion may actually, as a disciplinary act, prematurely put an end to someone's life. Now notice verse 32, he makes it very clear. He says, when we're chastened in these ways by the Lord severely, it's that we may not be condemned with the world. He's not taking away a person's salvation so that we're not condemned like the world is, and we don't go to hell, but the idea is that we're severely chastened, that the Lord may strongly bring disciplinary action 
because we aren't, in a sense, willing to shape up. And so the Lord has to intervene like a severe father. Verse 33 and 34, he says, Therefore, my brethren, when you come together, he says, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest, he says, I can't imagine what the rest was. (laughs) The rest, he says, I'll set in order when I come. So notice Paul concludes by drawing attention to what the Spirit of Christ should have been directing them to do when they came together for gathering times. They should have been doing two things, as we said earlier, denying themselves and considering others, because that's what would honor Christ. Notice the key phrase, I think, as he concludes here in verse 33. He says, when you come together, I have an underline in my Bible, verse 33, when you come together, wait for one another. The idea there is when you come together, he's saying, look, when you're preparing your hearts for communion, when you're coming together, he's saying, slow down. Because people may have come through the door with issues. And there may be people who need to work through some struggles with sin going on in their life. Or there may be people who are weighed down with heavy burdens. Or there may be people who are hurting and struggling. So he's saying, slow down. Don't just rush in, punch your ticket, run right out the door. He says, no, when you come together, wait for each other. Wait to make sure if there are some people that got to work through some stuff, slow it down, he says. Let them work through things and, and take your time, the ideas, because in the spirit of Christ, we're supposed to be here to minister one to another, right? To build each other up. Because what's the end goal when we come together as the body of Christ? The end goal should be this, to not only honor Jesus, but what did he say at the beginning of the passage? So that people leave doing better spiritually. Look, how does God gauge a successful church gathering that people leave doing better than when they came? Look, may God, by his grace, give us that heart as a local church that we would come with a hard attitude in what we do or what we don't do and how we interact with one another, that our primary goal is that we want to see people doing better spiritually when they walk out the door than when they came through the door.